Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. This is Shirley Halpern, Executive Editor of Music. Music lawyers run the gamut when it comes to personality. Some are rarely seen or quoted, preferring to negotiate under the radar. Others are seasoned schmoozers who table hop with abandon at industry events. Dina Lapolt, our guest on this music edition of the Strictly Business Podcast, approaches issues affecting her clients with the ferocity of a ring fighter. 20 years ago, she founded her own firm, Lapolt Law, and went on to represent music stars like Aerosmith's Steven Tyler, the late Eddie Money, rappers 21 Savage and Cardi B, and the girl group Fifth Harmony. As her practice grew, so did Dina's conviction for righting the music ecosystem's wrongs. She tackled producers' and songwriters' rights and access to digital royalties by helping craft and pass the Music Modernization Act, which was signed into law in 2018. She campaigned for federal COVID relief legislation packages geared towards helping music creators and independent contractors. She wrote letters urging investigations into the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. She's currently battling courts allowing rap lyrics to be introduced as evidence in criminal trials, and also advocating to eliminate the use of triggering terms like master recording, which is common in recording contracts. Serving as an ally to people of color is at the core of Dina's life, both professionally and at home where she's mom to adopted black twins. It's why Dina was recently recognized by the Black Music Action Coalition. BMAC is an advocacy organization formed to address systemic racism within the music business and advocate on behalf of black artists, songwriters, producers, managers, agents, executives, and other industry professionals. They held a starry gala in Los Angeles on September 23rd, where Dina was honored alongside The Weeknd, Motown chief Ethiopia Haptomarium, YouTube's Tumabasa, and George Floyd family attorney Ben Crump, among others. Dina teared up accepting the Agent of Change Award, remembering her first major client, Tupac Shakur's mother, Afini, and the rocky road she's traveled as an openly gay, loudly sober, music biz trailblazer. Some of that long, strange trip she shares with us here on Strictly Business after the break. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. 
If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome back to Strictly Business. Here's our interview with Dina LaPolt. Dina LaPolt, welcome to Strictly Business. Shirley Halperin, thank you for having me. I wanted to start uh, with a big question, I think, because it really sort of illustrates what LaPolt Law, your firm, is all about. You could have just joined a big name firm. There's a ton of them that do music clients and entertainment clients, but you decided to start your own shop. Can you tell me about the thinking that went into that? I love why everybody asked me this. Why did you start your own firm? Here's why. Because nobody wanted me. Let's be honest. It was 1997. I'm a woman. Because back then, that was not a big thing in the music business. I'm gay. I went to the wrong law school. All these things that back then were not desirable. So I started my own firm only because I didn't have any other options. Straight white men, they ran the music business. When I was in law school, I got the Dom Passman book, who's amazing, and I read that book, and I loved that book, and I started trying to figure out if there were any women that did what Dom Passman did. I found two women that I learned about, not online, because we didn't have online back then, really, um, but Jill Berliner and Rosemary Carroll were the only two women that I could find anything about that did what I did. So I held on to that vision throughout all of law school. You started out as a musician. I don't want to say was a failed musician, but the career didn't exactly pan out. What drew you to law? I was in a band, and I was playing at this conference in San Francisco called SFO, Nadine's Wild Weekend, sponsored by BMI. It was like South by Southwest, and my band got a showcase, and there were panels during the day. And I went to a panel called Negotiating Record Deals with Three Music Lawyers. And when I got there, I thought I was in the wrong panel because one guy had long hair, another guy had a tattoo on his neck, and another guy had two earrings. Mm -hmm. And... It was the lawyers panel, and they were lawyers. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. And I approached the guy with two earrings because his wife was in the San Francisco Philharmonic, and I was still a pompous classical musician. And uh, he said, well, you got to go to college first. I said, well, I did, and I have a degree in music. Does that count? He goes, I don't know. Call the colleges. And I ended up calling these law schools, and that's kind of how it happened for me. But one person saw my value, and that was Tupac's mother, Fanny Shakur. Yeah, she was basically like one of your first clients, right? Yeah, I was an intern at this law firm in Century City. Tupac had just died like a year and a half earlier, and everybody was suing the estate because he didn't have any agreements. I ended up meeting her one day at a fee petition hearing in downtown L.A. in the courtroom, and she just started all these, like, 
Oh, baby, you, you got to let go and let God one day at a time and first things first. And like all these slogans that we have in recovery. And I said to her, are you in recovery? She goes, oh, yes, 13 years off crack cocaine, honey. And I was four months sober. And I go, I'm in sober too. And I'm four months. And she goes, I knew I loved you. And anyways, hugging on me. And we were bonded from that minute on. But it was a feigny that kept telling me two years into knowing her, you need to open your own law firm. She was telling me that every day for like literally over a year. So did she see like an ambition in you that you didn't see in yourself? I think she did. I think she, because she had come from great adversity. I mean, remember, this was one of the Panther 21's famous trial, 1971, you know, where she represented herself on 179 felony counts, gets herself acquitted as she's eight months pregnant with Tupac. And meanwhile, some of her co-conspirators are going to prison and they had lawyers. She was brilliant and she helped me. So now that you've been in this practice for 20 years, how many women are at the firm? We're 70% women. Has the legal industry gotten better in terms of diversity and gender parity or not yet? Yeah, it's so funny because I joke with all of my friends that are women and all of my friends that are of people of color. Um, we said we're like the hot thing now. I mean, look at things in the music business on the company side are not going to change until one of the main music companies, whether it's one of the labels or one of the digital service providers, until those companies are headed by a woman or a person of color, we're not going to see real change. We're seeing some change, like calling out the record companies for the, using the term master recording. Now everybody's changing it to sound recording because I've talked to all of them and they're all taking the initiative. Wow. So this explains a little bit of why you were, you're involved in BMAC, the Black Music Action Coalition, because you're obviously very passionate about opportunities being there for, you know, someone who isn't white and male. But you also have two adopted sons yeah. that are black. Talking to one of the board members, Ashana Ayer, she's like, Dina, this is how it's going to change for black people when white people are doing the things that you're doing because that's how it's going to change for us. And when she told me that, I go, yeah, if every white person I know was doing what I was doing and calling, then it would change. Like, I'm constantly upset about the 1,700 Confederate monuments that are still up all over this country. You know, all of the systemic racism that happens, just using the term master recording. You know, all of the things we're not taught in school about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Like, real history of this country, 12 generations of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow. Like, this is the history of this country, and I'm really committed, and I've been throughout my entire life. I mean, my earliest memory that I knew that something was wrong was when I was six, my mother ripping the whites-only sign off the water fountain in Myrtle Beach and then taking us to the Black Beach. I was six, and my mother was telling me that this is wrong, and if we don't stand up for people, it's never going to be right, and that we have to stand up. So I had, when I first found out about it, I was like, okay, 
I don't know if I should be doing this. And then when Ashana said, no, we need white people like you to do these things so it can really change for us, you know. And then raising my kids is a big thing. I mean, I, they're proud black boys, and uh, they know all about the civil rights movement, and they know all about the challenges that we have, and we teach them that. In California, you have to have an adoption agency to adopt kids, and when you know you're having multiracial kids and you're not multiracial, you have to take these classes. And everybody took these classes. We were in a class with all these people, all these white people, and everybody got a cup, and everybody got a tray of beads. And there were white beads, yellow beads, brown beads, red beads, black beads. And the woman would say, put the color of the bead of the predominant race of everybody in your household. And you put the bead in there. Put the predominant bead of the color of everybody you work with. You put the bead in there. Put the color of the bead of everybody that's in your neighborhood. You put the color of beads. So there's like 20 questions. At the end, everybody's cup was white. The woman's like, how are you going to raise multiracial kids? And, you know, we're fortunate that our cup is not white. We have a multicolored cup, you know, but it is something that you have to be proactive in doing. You literally, like, okay, Aurora James, who's also being honored with the Agent Change Agent Award at BMAC, she has this thing, the 15% rule, and she and this is now global all over the place. You know, like Old Navy's doing it in Target. Like 15% of your workforce has to be people of color. But I like to bring that down to a very localized, at least 15% of the people in your life need to be people of color. Look around, people. Guess what? The only people that are uncomfortable talking about race are white people. Black people are not uncomfortable talking about race. Only white people are. So if you can't look in the mirror and say, God, everybody in my neighborhood is white, or everybody in my kid's circle is white, or everybody in my workforce is white, if you can't recognize that and make a commitment to start changing, not that that you are going to be wrong and shamed for that, but it's the commitment to make a difference. You have to change. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll has <laughs> always been the slogan. I love sex, drugs, and rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, you got into music yeah. probably because that spoke to you. Yes. But what happens when you're now sober? You have to take that element out of it. Um, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. When did the tide turn from party all the time, I want to rock and roll all night, <laughs> right, and party every day, to maybe we should think about having a dry tour, or maybe we yeah. should think about putting our bassist or our drummer in rehab. I never experienced being a professional musician as a sober person, but I have clients that are sober, and it's amazing to me the sober network of touring personnel. Like, we literally have a list of people that are in recovery, and we all talk about this. All of us in the music business that are sober and in recovery, we call each other, we talk about it. We go, hey, we call, do you have a sober tour manager? It's going out, yes, we got sober tour managers, sober lighting technicians, sober roadies, sober this, sober that, sober videographers, sober stylists, like there's a network of people that are available to work on tours and because being touring is a is a drudge it's a grind oh my god you know it was like this is horrible I can't imagine it and you know since I've been a lawyer I've been on clients tours where they have you know huge rock stars okay 
where they have huge, amazing buses and five-star hotel and still a grind. I'm like, this is a grind, okay? And I can't imagine doing this for 50 years like my amazing, beloved Steven Tyler. But it is hard, you know what I mean? Especially for someone that is, is sober. So Variety does an annual recovery issue, which I'm super proud of. We wrote about the origins of Dry Tours, and Aerosmith was one of the first bands to to really, you know, like some kind of monster the whole thing. You know, therapy, Dry Tours, a let's get through this. There's a them on the East Coast. It's almost like what comes first, the horse or the cart? Like, does the touring drive you to drink, right? Or... You haven't had proper mental health no. or proper health insurance as a musician that no one's looking out for you. No, you're an addict. It's like be, you are an addict from the minute you're a little kid. Like you have addiction issues. In entertainment, it's more prevalent because it's acceptable to drink and use. Like you work at IBM, it's not acceptable to drink and use. So our industry, you have people smoking pot, doing lines of cocaine, intermittently and it's acceptable it's not like that in any other industry like the car industry oh let's do a line of coke in the middle of, you know what i mean so we're able to mask it a lot but addiction is addiction and the way it works in addiction is it's a progressive illness so the older you get you know the more untreated you are it gets worse and worse and worse and worse we need to take a quick break but we'll be back with more from Dina LaPole. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com And we're back with Dina LaPole. I wanted to ask about how you've advocated for songwriters because it's been at times an uphill battle. Why do these creators, these songwriters, the people responsible for the lyrics of the biggest hits in the world, why do they seem to always get the short end of the stick? It's just the way the laws work, and it's really unfair. And the laws, I mean, this is copyright law that goes back hundreds of years. Talk about moving a battleship, you know what I mean? It's like 
trying to pass laws like, you know, by the time we passed the Music Modernization Act, it was already outdated 10 years. And that's just the reality of how this is because it's all Congress. So songwriters are all regulated by the government. They don't get to negotiate in a free market. And whether it's the consent decrees that were enacted almost 80 years ago, the Govern, Ask, and BMI, the country's two biggest performing rights societies that collect monies for songs that are performed on the radio and on some of the interactive digital services, or it's mechanical royalties for music that's streamed over interactive services like Spotify and Amazon. These are all regulated antiquated consent decrees and outdated portions of the Copyright Act. I mean, when we did the Music Modernization Act, there was no mechanism for songwriters to get their money from services like Spotify. And what Spotify, these companies wanted, is a compulsory license. So it was a catch-22. It was like, no, we don't want to give you a compulsory license because that's the regulation. But they're like, well, we're not paying you. We're just going to accumulate this money and torture you until you agree. And finally, at the breaking point, we came up with a list of like 15 things that we wanted because we knew the one thing that they wanted was a compulsory license. Well, we know that's bad for songwriters. It's just this regulation, okay? But they need the money, and there's millions and millions of dollars out there, so what do we want? Okay, here's what we want. We don't want the record company collecting our mechanical royalty income anymore and paying songwriters and publishers. Forget that. We want to have a a sound exchange for songs. And we don't want the record companies to run it. We want songwriters to be on that. And it needs to be independent. Um, So let the services fund it. Oh, and another thing. Only the very rich can afford to audit. Songwriters never get to audit because it's a lot of money. So guess what? Right in there that we get to audit. And they got to pay for it. So all these things came from sitting around and figuring out what we wanted in exchange for this one thing that they wanted. That's kind of how it came about. But here's one thing that we did realize as we were in the thick of it. And this was an issue. There was no creators of color helping us advocate and we talked about this early on and 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 I said and I said to Chairman Nadler because they don't see any black people involved. Like everybody on the judiciary that's involved in this reform are white people. Like you want black people to be involved, we have to have black people in charge. So now I lobbied for this for like six months. Now Congressman Hank Johnson is the chairman of the Subcommittee on Intellectual Property Courts and the Internet, which is going to be really important when we go into DMCA review next Congress when we're looking at, you know, reform legislation for Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So the compulsory license just gives them free reign to... To stream the music. Yeah. And they got to pay the statutory mechanical royalty rate, which is another outdated, crappy thing that songwriters have to deal with, with the Copyright Royalty Board. And we're going into another Copyright Royalty Board next year. And we're trying to line up all of our songwriter witnesses, and we're in the middle of doing that. So this is, uh, remember when we got, like, uh, the publishers and the songwriters fought, but right before the MMA was passed, we got the Copyright Royalty Board to give us a 40% increase in the mechanical royalty, and then Spotify appealed it, Mm -hmm. and they just won the appeal. No, it's this, like, it's this Catch-22. It's like, you know, how, it's like going... 
people say to me, how did you get the music modern? How did you help work with all these Republicans to get the Music Modernization Act passed? It's like people, we are working with Spotify. Like you know, it's the same. It's the same concept. You know, you have to work with people to make it happen. So it's like here's Spotify that treats us the worst, and we're still like working with them and embracing them and you know it's still a very important part of what we do and we're working on the playlisting and going to their offices and we're friends with everybody that works there it's the world's biggest record store right right you got to deal with them just like the republicans got to deal with them now if you could do it over if you could just like wipe out all the legislation start from scratch how would it be modeled in your perfect view Well, I would have songwriters deal in a free market, which people say that can't happen because we would never have any music. No, you would have music that was paid for. And if the songwriters didn't want you to stream the music or play the music, you couldn't play the music. I feel like there could be some sort of blanket licensing, but it would have to really be something that's crafted by the songwriters with the songwriters. What have you learned about dealing with Washington through this experience with the, with the Music Modernization Act? Well, it's very dysfunctional. The way we elect our officials, all these weird rules, filibuster, the way it works, it's like people with the most money that have the most powerful lobbyists get heard, whereas people that are grassroots don't get heard. I think the entertainment part, because we represent huge celebrities in music that have millions and millions of followers, we get heard. You know what I mean? It's almost like having enough money. It's like, okay, we're not paying our lobbyists, you know, $3,000 an hour, but we have these artists that have 40 million Twitter followers in your district. You get heard. You know what I mean? But it's a slog. Um But also learning to work with people. I mean, it was really hard working with these Republicans, especially during the Trump era. And I got to say this. I was disinvited to the White House. I'm a proud owner of that. (laughs) Okay? So wait, so you're talking about when the MMA was signed into law. We all flew to Washington. There was a big party that the Senate was having. We're all there with the Senate. And the next day was the signing of the White House. And as we're at the party, all of us are like, people are like, checking their email. I was just disinvited to the White House. I I was like one of the first ones disinvited. So at first I took it personally and I called my wife. I'm like, I was disinvited. She goes, thank God. (laughs) How are we going to explain that to the kids that you were going to the White House with Donald Trump? I go, oh, yeah, I should be relieved. And I go, God, I'm the only one, though. But no, Paul Williams was disinvited. When Paul Williams got disinvited, I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Paul Williams, who wrote The Rainbow Connection. Yes. Hilarious. Dina, you've written uh, several really fantastic essays for Variety, but I wanted to talk about uh, one that we've already published and one that's that's coming up that's going to be published in conjunction with this podcast. You wrote about rap lyrics are now admissible in some criminal trials. So if you rapped uh, or bragged in a lyric about, you know, doing something illegal, it could actually be used right. against you. You represent 21 Savage. You represent Cardi B. Yeah, listen, this is a racist initiative. 
Let's be clear about this. This is racist. And when you told me about the appeals court in Maryland, which is the highest court in the land in the state of Maryland, which now makes it legal that you can use rap lyrics or lyrics against someone as evidence of their crimes or guilt or this or that or being in a gang, you don't see this in country music. Okay, where the murder ballad is a big thing, you know, talking about murdering your cheating wife or raping this one or beating this one or whacking this one. Like, this is a big thing. And this is not a thing. It's only used against black people, predominantly black men. And I'm telling you, it's terrible. And I recently wrote an article called... um, a memo, actually, Rap Music in the American Justice System, which I'm using as some kind of a white paper to help get legislation passed for this. So one of my interns that worked for me over the summer, she's at the University of Irvine, and she worked on this uh, clinic. For the past five years, this professor, Professor Jack Lerner, has written this guide called Rap on Trial, and it's a legal treatise for defense attorneys. Because this is how bad it is, okay? I mean, it is, it is, it's just happening in all these very conservative districts where we're seeing this happen. And we have to get, we got to get ahead of this issue. Did this factor into um, your representation of 21 Savage at all? He was detained by ICE. Well, he was picked up by ICE because, I mean, listen, it was no coincidence, all right? He performs on Jimmy Kimmel. An alternate verse of one of his songs, it talks about immigration at the border, criticizing the Trump immigration policy, and like, you know, then we get tipped off that ICE is going to pick him up. So it's terrible. Like, but the way that this is working in America is that all of the people that are having problems with this, okay, are all black people. So here's another thing that's just not right. Let's talk about the other essay that we are publishing. So we thought in honor of the 20th anniversary of LaPolt Law that you should write an essay about 20 things you've learned in 20 years. And um, it's on Variety.com. If anyone wants to look at it, just click on the Music tab and you'll find it right there. It's part of our Power of Women coverage. I wanted to just talk about a few of these. First of all, this I was surprised to see coming from a lawyer. Never lie or over-exaggerate in deal-making. Explain that. A lot of times when you're negotiating deals, you'll get an offer from a record company. And to get a better offer, you tell other record companies... This is the offer, and you lie. You go, oh, this is the advance. This is what I got from Interscope. You lie about all this. First of all, it violates every spiritual principle that I follow, okay? But second of all, people will always find out because executives leave companies. They go to other companies. They go to other areas of the business, and then they always find out. It always comes back and bites you in the ass. Avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read the little subhead here. <laughs> Life is complicated without sprinkling any self-induced negativity or alternative facts into the situation. Explain that. It's a big thing. So if you're dealing with something that's stressful, you can make it worse by future tripping or trespassing into the future, as like I say, you know, or you can make it worse for yourself. So, for example, if you exaggerate or lie in deal-making and then 
someone on the other side finds out about that and that company says, I'm never going to do business with you again, and people know about that, well, you just did this to yourself. Avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery. It comes into a lot of things. Number nine on your list. There are two types of business, my business and none of my business. I choose wisely. I mean, listen, people try to pull me into things all the time because I'm great in crisis. I think quick on my feet and I have a high degree of emotional intelligence so I can really assess a situation quickly. But also getting involved in other areas that are not my practice areas cause liability. So you have to be very clear about like, no, I can't get involved in that because of this, that, the other. And, you know, and there's certain things, whether it's law or just personal related, you start getting involved in things that's not your business. And the next thing you know, you could have avoided the deliberate manufacture of misery. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. This has been a mantra of mine for 20 years. So... Everything in my life, if I look at my life as a trajectory, and I'm 55 years old, I have gotten where I am from hardship. Every, I've failed so many times and have been told no so many times and has been told it can't be done so many times. And one thing after another, I kept getting up, I kept getting up. And it's like, you know what? I look back and it's like, how did I get through those times? Yeah, they were tough times. You know, tough times don't last, tough people do. Donald Trump, that was some tough times, okay? We got through that. Tough people got through that. We didn't mention uh, that you uh, worked at UCLA. You taught a class for so long, so let's go and let's talk about this one. If you want to really understand a subject, then teach it or become a mentor. Yes. Yeah, listen, in the beginning, it was hard because a lot of the concepts, producer royalties, the way they're calculated, retroactive to record one, all these things was very complicated, and I'm dyslexic. So I was, it was very hard for me to get these concepts, especially because I didn't come in a firm where someone is teaching me. When I started teaching at UCLA, and it was an extension class, so people in the business wanted to come to my class to get a competitive edge and understand things, that's when I really started learning the stuff. Like all these complicated concepts on foreign neighboring rights and how mechanical royalties are computed outside in North America and all these things, like that all came from me teaching at UCLA for almost 20 years. I mean, that's the opposite of that saying, those who can't do, teach. You literally can do and you teach to, to do better. Yeah, I teach it to do better. And listen, this is funny. People go, oh, it's so wonderful. You're an NFT expert. It's like, no, 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 no. I started teaching about NFTs so I can understand what this was. Let's talk about NFTs just a little bit. Like when I first heard about NFTs, my first reaction was like, this seems like a copyright nightmare. Um, what are the legalities of these these art pieces? Well, first you have to... Determine these are collectible, so it's driven by art. It's collectible. So if you're going to have, first of all, so there's there the ownership of the art. Who's creating the image? Who owns the image? Okay. Now if there's music on it. Okay, it's the same thing. 
is there a recording that's implicated subject to some exclusive deal? Okay, it's a record deal. It's, you know, it's, you know, let's say it's with Atlantic Records. It's an artist recording. They're signed to Atlantic. That's a piece you got to clear. Who are the songwriters of the underlying musical composition? Are there publishers? So this is the whole analysis to go through. But first, before you even get to that analysis, you have to make a determination as to what the percentage of the music is of the overall NFT. And that's very subjective. If it's driven by the art, say Lady Gaga's doing it. She's not a client, so I can talk about her. If it's driven by the art, and it's Lady Gaga, and it's the art thing, well, that's the art and her trademark and her image, okay? But then she has some of her music, okay? Well, what is the percentage of music to the NFT? If you say, well, the percentage of music is 10% of the entire NFT because this thing will sell even without her music because she's Lady Gaga, then that's an argument you make to her record company and you make to the publishing company. So once you determine what the overall percentage is of music of the NFT, then you just split that in half. One side is the recording, one side is the song, and then you clear the rights like that. But what about the person buying the NFT? Do Uh, they then have ownership of those things? No, because when you, well, no, 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 because you have to also be very clear with the platform too, because this was an issue early on where some of the fans would buy these NFTs and then they'd say, well, I own the song. So you have to be very clear with both what you're doing in, as far as you're doing an open, you know, an auction or you're doing another kind of drop, you have to make sure your fans know that they're buying the physicality of the digital piece, not the actual ownership of the underlying musical composition or the IP. But let me tell you this. Some companies are coming to artists saying, hey, you can do this um, big platform where we – where the fans buy and invest into your art and it's the fans that are all investing and buying and you can make so much more money because you're fractionalizing this and it and this violates the securities laws so you got to be very careful about that you know what i mean you have to say whoa well wait a second you think about outdated laws okay the outdated law for securities is from 1946 that's still the law the howey test Okay, so it's like, I mean, the good news is, is some of the commissioners of the SEC now are crypto friendly. They're very crypto, you know, friendly and they're knowledgeable. And even the Biden administration has put out some positive statements, although some of the cabinet in the Biden administration is very against it because of the money laundering and especially now with the Taliban and things overseas. So we're going to... Like you could hide cash in Ethereum. Hands down. Wow. So it is very, 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 very dangerous sometimes. You know, and I tell clients, I go, I tell clients, great, you're going to do an NFT, you're going to stay away from anything that possibly implicates the SEC. Anything that implicates the SEC, you're not doing yeah, it seems like it needs. Uh, it's complicated. Some le- <laughs> some regulation. It needs, regu- <laughs> you know. Whereas everything else we talked about is like too much regulation. This right. actually needs regulation. Yeah, like- I'm an activist, okay. and I'm about change. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, if I wanted to follow the laws, I'd be a cop. Okay, <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I change the laws. Oh my god, everyone, be forewarned. <laughs> Dina Lapolte has the receipts, and she's not afraid to use them. <laughs> Dina, thanks so much for being with us on Strictly Business. Thanks for having me, Shirley. 
tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.